Hello, it's Monday, the 8th of January, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Won j a n g w o Five-term lawmaker Lee Sang-min, who left the main opposition Democratic Party last month, has joined the ruling People Power Party ahead of the general elections in April. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. North Korea fired hundreds of artillery shells into the sea near the de facto maritime border for three consecutive days last week. We discussed the implications of these provocative acts for our in-depth today. And coming up for Monday's Sports Roundup, we analyse South Korea's 1-0 win over Iraq, the final friendly before the AFC Asian Cup in Qatar. We have all that and more on today's Korea 24. Veteran lawmaker Lee Sang-min has crossed the political aisle and joined the ruling People Power Party. This comes after the five-term lawmaker left the main opposition Democratic Party last month and it will serve as a welcome boost for the PPP ahead of the general elections coming up in April. And for more on this story and the rest of today's headlines, we have news editor Daniel Chair stepping in today. Daniel, hello, it's good to see you. Hello, it's good to see you too, Jango. So there had been a lot of speculation of will he, won't he join the ruling PPP. Uh, there was talk that he might join a third party, but it was the PPP in the end. The party, of course, welcomed the move. Understand he explained what motivated him to make this drastic switch at an induction ceremony. Can you tell us what he said? Right. For that session held on Monday, Yi donning a red tie, the color of the conservative bloc, said that the success for the Yoon Seok-yeol-led government depends on the PPP winning big in the April elections. He called for efforts to quickly fix shortcomings and defects, and the lawmaker elected five times in Daejeon expressed hope that he can contribute to the process. Yi left the DP in December, criticizing the leadership of its leader, Yi Jae-myung. Meanwhile, another major DP figure is also set to make a high-profile departure from the party, but this time to form his own party. Former Prime Minister and party leader Lee Nagyeon is set to make a formal announcement later this week. Daniel, can you tell us more? Well, former DP Chair Lee Nagyeon, who plans to announce the formation of a new party, will withdraw from the main opposition later this week. An official from Lee's office said he will formally leave the party with a press conference at the National Assembly on Thursday, following up on an announcement while visiting the May 18th National Cemetery in Gwangju on Sunday. Lee's departure would come less than two weeks after he held talks with the current DP Chair Yi Jae-myung. Yi Nagyeon would become the second former chief from either party to defect. People Power Party leader Yi Jun-suk left to form his own party. Yeah, so the local political scene is really seeing a major shake-up ahead of the elections in just three months' time. Meanwhile, sticking with the DP, the police have arrested a, sus- a suspected accomplice of the man who attacked DP leader Yi Jae-myung last week. What do we know so far? Well, the suspected accomplice, a man in his 70s, was arrested in South Chungcheong province on Sunday. Investigations are ongoing to find if he was involved in the crime. The Busan Metropolitan Police Agency said the alleged accomplice promised to send a letter to the attacker after the crime had been committed. He has denied involvement with the crime so far. As for the suspect himself who attacked the DP chair, I understand the police will decide soon whether to publicly disclose his identity. Yes, the decision will be made on Tuesday. According to the Busan Metropolitan Police, the Committee on ID Disclosure will convene the following day to determine whether to release personal information of the suspect's surname Kim. The current law permits info such as the suspect's name, age and face to be disclosed in cases involving serious harm with sufficient evidence and is in the public's interest. and also meets the legal rights to know. 
Uh, Kim's political affiliation will not likely be publicized in accordance with the political party law. The 67-year-old suspect was placed in pretrial detention on charges of attempted murder after stabbing the DP chair in the neck with a camping knife in Busan last Tuesday. Okay, let's turn to North Korea-related news now, because the regime fired artillery rounds into the sea for a third day on Sunday. But Pyongyang has also claimed that they were not artillery rounds and that they were part of a, quote-unquote, deceptive operation. South Korea's Joint Chiefs of Staff have refuted such claims, but can you walk us through the latest? Yes, a South Korea's Joint Chief of Staff said on Sunday that North Korea fired some 90 shells into waters north of South Korea's Yeonpyeong Island for about 7 minutes from 4 p.m. The shells fell into the buffer zone north of the NLL with no damage to South Korea. No plans for a military response. The JCS said North Korea fired about 60 rounds into waters off the west coast on Saturday, but Pyongyang claimed it detonated explosives 60 times to simulate the sound of 130-millimeter coastal artillery in an operation of deception. This came in a statement by Kim Yo-jung, the sister of the regime's leader, released by the state-run KCNA on Sunday. She said the South military misjudged the explosions as expected. The JCS said the military's detection assets did pick up 60 shells fired on Saturday and dismissed Kim's claims as rudimentary psychological warfare. A military source said the rounds were bookended by a total of around 10 explosive detonations. Yes, we'll further assess these claims by North Korea for our in-depth today coming up after our news briefing here. Uh, staying with cross-border tensions, the JCS said suspended live-fire drills will resume since North Korea nullified, with its provocations, the inter-Korean buffer zones stipulated by the 2018 military agreement. That's right. JCS spokesperson Lee Sung-jun said in a regular briefing on Monday, the zone pertaining to the land, sea and air no longer stands since the regime committed over 3,600 violations and conducted artillery fire in the West Sea for three straight days, and that the South Korean military will conduct live-fire drills according to its own plans instead of individually responding to enemy provocations. Regarding the regime's claims of deceiving the South by detonating explosives, he said the military is capable of distinguishing explosions and artillery. In other news, let's turn our focus to space now, because South Korea plans to launch two military spy satellites this year as well. Can you tell us more? That's right. The Defense Acquisition Program Administration, or DAPA, said on Monday two military recon satellites will be launched on a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket from Cape Canaveral Space Force Station in April and November. The orbiters will be equipped with synthetic arbitral radar, which creates images by shooting electromagnetic waves at a ground target and synthesizing the reflected signal, enabling close observation of North Korea's movements regardless of the weather. The agency said operation in conjunction with the electro-optical and infrared satellite launched in December will strengthen capability to detect signs of nuclear and missile provocations by the regime. Right, this comes, of course, after South Korea launched its first military reconnaissance satellite last year. That's where we wrap it up for our news briefing today. Daniel, thank you for bringing us those updates. Thank you so much for having me. Three days straight, North Korea fired artillery shells into the sea near the disputed maritime border with South Korea. According to Seoul's Joint Chiefs of Staff, the North fired more than 200 artillery rounds on Friday, followed by 60 rounds on Saturday and another 90 rounds on Sunday. 
Friday's provocation even led South Korea to issue evacuation orders for residents in the area. However, earlier on Sunday, Kim Yo-jung, the influential sister of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, mocked the South's ability to detect its weapons launches, claiming that Pyongyang had conducted a deceptive operation by detonating explosives, simulating the sound of coastal artillery the previous day. Such remarks were dismissed by the JCS. To get some expert analysis on the rising tensions between the two Koreas and what lies ahead for the Korean Peninsula this year, we're joined on the line by Dr. Andrew Ya, Senior Fellow and the SK Korea Foundation Chair at the Brookings Institution's Centre for East Asia Policy Studies. Dr. Ya, hello and welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me here. First off, how do you view the recent provocations uh, by North Korea? How alarming is it? I mean, these are very troubling. I mean, we've seen North Korea ratcheting up, uh, escalating tensions, not only just the last three days with artillery shells, but since they've launched a satellite into space, um, they've scrapped the comprehensive military agreement, they launched an intercontinental ballistic missile. I think North Korea is really sending a message that they are um, going to take a more aggressive foreign policy approach towards uh, South Korea and also towards the U.S. in the upcoming year. Right. So North Korea seemingly resolute in putting a more uh, aggressive front at the moment. But there has also been this curious claim by North Korea. As I mentioned, Kim Yo-jung, the sister of Kim Jong-un, released a statement on North Korean state media saying that the artillery firings the previous day were essentially a fake to test the South Korean military's detection capabilities. Seoul has dismissed such claims, describing it as low-level psychological warfare or propaganda. But what do you make of these claims? Do you think there's any Credibility to the North's claims? Could there be a failure in South Korea's detection capabilities? Yes, it's quite intriguing. And, you know, we can only take North Korea's word and then the South Korean military's word that this is all psychological warfare and that the North Koreans are lying. So it's, I mean, it's hard to prove. I will say that um, just based on other uh, open source news accounts, it does seem like the South Korean military was more precise about the locations of the artillery firing on Friday, and they've been uh, a little more ambiguous about where the location of, of artillery firing, what direction they were fired. Um, they've been more ambiguous Saturday, Sunday. So there could be something to that claim, but, you know, we really don't know. I think the, the bigger message, though, is that what North Korea is saying is, is, is troubling because uh, these uh, rounds, whether they're uh, live rounds or you know, fake rounds, they were just uh, mimic, mimicking sounds of artillery, it can really lead to misperception and miscalculation. And so, of course, the fear is that the South Koreans reacted to um, uh, sound noises that were uh, were intended to be artillery. I mean, that could be really troubling. And that's what Kim Yo-jung was pointing out, mm. that the South Koreans were reacting to something that wasn't really actually a, a live artillery firing. Um, so again, uh, you know, I don't have, I haven't seen the proof or evidence to uh, see that otherwise. So I, we, we just have to take the South Korean military at face value. Although, again, I'll mention that uh, it seems like the the location, the information that the South Korean military has put out for uh, the artillery, uh, the artillery firing uh, on Saturday, Sunday is less precise than it was on Friday. 
Right, and talking about uh, South Korea's reaction in response to the first incident on Friday, the South Korean military conducted its own live fire drill, uh, firing some 400 rounds into the maritime buffer zone as well. But then it opted against responding to subsequent provocations on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, What do you make of South Korea's response? Yeah, well, the South Korean uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff had uh, assessed that the direction was not directly... I mean, it was was in a different direction that was less threatening, they claimed. uh, And so it didn't uh, didn't, uh, justify or warrant a response. So that was the argument from the South Korean military. So again, what we're seeing is that there's, there's less precision about where that artillery came from. So that's why uh, there could be some truth to what North Korea is saying. But again, we don't know uh, for sure. It's more of a, you know, North Korea says one thing, South Korea reacts the other way. Um, I think there needs to be further investigation for there to be any conclusive proof. Whether we see any or not, uh, that, that remains to be seen. But still, South Korea's uh, response uh, on Friday, firing rounds into the maritime buffer zone, that has caused concerns about escalation. Do you have any concerns about the situation escalating to even physical clashes this year? Yeah, so that was what I had mentioned about the comprehensive military agreement. That was something that was signed, but that was something agreed upon between North and South Korea in 2018 following the Singapore summit that was supposed to lower the tension. Uh, so North Korea and South Korea, they weren't supposed to fortify that border. They would try to uh, scale back um, uh, border guards. And uh, of course, North Korea decided to scrap that completely. Now, South Korea hasn't completely walked back the, CM, the comprehensive military agreement, the CMA. It's just, I think on, they've, they decided to um, defend themselves in terms of any aerial attacks. So on the maritime border, they haven't uh, walked back completely on the CMA, but because there's uh, because of the uh, the steps that have been taken after North Korea scrapped the CMA, it, it does seem like they they do want to ratchet up tensions again. South Korea is responding in kind. Um, yeah, these are there are tensions that are happening again uh, along the North South Korea border that weren't there for the last um, four or five years. So that is a worrying development. Right, so perhaps the risk uh, of the situation escalating even to physical clashes is uh, the highest it's been in several years, you're saying? Yeah, I I do think that there is a risk of physical clashes. And let's say that even with the artillery shows, if something, there were an errant round that hit, uh, you know, in Yongpeng uh, Yongpeng Island, which is uh, in in the area, that's something that happened in uh, 2011. yeah, I mean, if, if there was some kind of accident, uh, this could also trigger some kind of uh, kinetic response from South Korea, even if it's not deliberate on the North Korean part. So uh, these uh, are these uh, artillery rounds right uh, from both South and North Korea um, do raise the risk of, of um, physical fighting uh, across the border, even if they aren't intended. And uh, yeah, so that's something that we'll have to watch for uh, this year. Do you think this is the pattern we're going to be seeing this year, uh, ramped up provocations? Uh, what more provocations do you think we could see? The North recently revealed that it plans to launch three more spy satellites this year as well, as part of efforts to uh, beef up its military capabilities. Is there other things that we should be concerned about as well? For example, a nuclear test? 
Yes, and so some are saying because uh, of the you know there are different election cycles, but with the U.S. elections coming up, um, is that a time for uh, Kim Jong Un to to move ahead with a major provocation like a seventh nuclear test? So that may be possibly in the works as well. Too, of course, many experts have. Uh, myself included, have have predicted at one point in the last two years that there might be a seventh nuclear test and we haven't seen it. Um, but certainly the direction that North Korea is taking with uh, you know the promise of three more satellites being launched and you know there's a ICBM test uh, last month and I wouldn't be surprised if there wouldn't be another one on the horizon. I mean we are going to see more. Uh, more of these threats. And that's something also that Kim Jong-un mentioned uh, in the, his uh, plenary address uh, at the end of the year. You know, he, last year he talked much more about economics, about, you know, food shortages and trying to you know, promote uh, housing and, and food. But this year he seemed, he sounded like, uh, you know, North Korea is going to be much more assertive and he was actually quite proud of what North Korea achieved. He actually claimed that the economy is doing better but they also talked about the tensions that the U.S. and U.S., South Korea, Japan have uh, have provoked. And it seems like North Korea wants to respond in kind re- uh, in relation to the different steps that the U.S., uh, South Korea, and Japan have taken over the past year. During that end-of-year plenary meeting, uh, that you just mentioned as well, leader Kim Jong-un also made some uh, concerning remarks such as ruling out the possibility of unifying with South Korea, saying that North Korea seeks a unification policy based on one nation and two systems. What do you read into uh, these remarks? Yes, yeah, so you know, we also know that South Korea recently, um, you know, with the unification minister, with the defense minister, they've also talked about unification. The student government you know, has made unification more, uh, the ter- used, unification with greater prominence than his predecessor, Moon Jae-in. But of course, the underlying tone of, or assumption of that is that it's a unification by assumption or unification towards, you know, a liberal, uh, uh, adopting, you know, uh, uh, you know, liberal principles or an approach. And for South, for North Korea, of course, that's very threatening. It's really the end of the North Korean regime. And I think, Kim Jong-un has made uh, a decision or he's, you know, shifted his tone on what uh, reunification looks like, thinking that uh, the terms that South Korea wants is not what is compatible with what we think about with reunification, which is this uh, confederation model or a two-state or two-system, you know, a one-nation type model. At least initially, that's what the North Koreans want. And I, I really think that um, Kim Jong-un feels that South Korea has just gone in such a different direction. It's so tied to the United States right now. And that even when they think about the future of, of unification, that South Korea is so different that it's a foreign country now that he just doesn't see reunification in the works. And so if you'd no longer see South Korea as part of the same nation, you know, it does provide justification for Kim Jong-un to take on a much more belligerent approach that there could even be war with this other foreign state. So I think in some ways, Kim Jong-un is setting up the country uh, rhetorically, or at least getting North Koreans to think about the possibility that we could uh, one day face conflict with uh, the South. And uh, because we no longer see them as 
the same nation as us, that they've gone on at a very different path. Hmm. Well, this ramping up of tensions comes at a time, as you mentioned earlier, when there are two major elections coming up that affects uh, the peninsula. First is the uh, parliamentary elections in South Korea that are taking place in April. Then the U.S. presidential elections, of course, uh, being held in November. And there is, as you said, speculation that North Korea is looking to ramp up provocative acts this year in an attempt to perhaps influence these elections. Uh, according to the Korea Institute for National Unification, uh, the North could intensify psychological warfare, online and offline terrorist attacks against the South ahead of the April elections. What are views on this speculation? Yeah, I mean, the... Parliamentary elections are, are interesting because on, on one hand, um, the opposition, uh, the Progressive Democratic Party of Korea, they already control the National Assembly. So uh, for them to, uh, you know, if, you know, it's, for them to gain more seats, I mean, that wouldn't necessarily change uh, change the outcome. It's really if if North Koreans feel that they don't want I mean, if, if for them, the mission is to prevent uh, the People Power Party from the PPP from getting more seats, then they may, uh, you know, they may try some provocation to show that uh, Yoon Sung-yeol, President Yoon Sung-yeol, his party's uh, approach to North Korea, this hardline approach, has really failed. If they want to highlight that, they may um, try some provocation. And then there's also some, uh, they may also, um, as you mentioned, use uh, their uh, skills in terms of, of cyber attacks or uh, espionage in ways that could uh, you know, uh, insert news that is uh, you know, what South Korea would refer, or here in the U.S. we would refer to as fake news. They could put they could promote a disinformation campaign um, that could maybe uh, discredit uh, discredit. Uh, PPP party members uh, before the election. So those are certainly uh, possibilities. I mean, I do, we did see that uh, Kim Jong-un, uh, he, I mean, he was very critical of, of Yoon sang of course. Uh, he did uh, mention President Moon Jae-in. He said that he was more cunning. Uh, I think he was also being, um, I mean, he was being cynical, I think, in these remarks as well, too. But at least he tried to make a point that whereas maybe Moon Jae-in was much more cunning and wise about the way he was going about inter-career relations. Uh, Yoon sang is not. Mm. So these sorts of comments, you know, he may, he may try to make uh, about the party in, in general as well, too. So those are some things that we may uh, see before the election. And in the new sphere that maybe North Korea may try to push Right. So then in light of what we've already seen in the early days of this year already and some of the points we've been talking about, how do you think then South Korea and the U.S. should deal with uh, North Korea and its possible provocation this year? Yeah, that's really the, the key question that no one has a very good answer to. For the last two years, Really, North, uh, South Korea and the United States, they've really been focusing on defense, deterrence, military readiness, because they've seen North Korea escalating uh, tensions. In 2022, there's a record number of missile tests. But because North Korea is not interested in any dialogue, really the only thing the U.S. and South Korea can do is try to protect their own um, 
borders that protect uh, their own national interest or security. And to do this, you know, they've also uh, increased uh, the number of joint exercises. The U.S. has been deploying more strategic assets, things like uh, bombers, uh, you know, planes, bombers, uh, nuclear submarines to the Korean Peninsula to try to demonstrate that they're, uh, that the U.S. will protect uh, South Korea. Um, and of course, they've strengthened their ties with Japan and the U.S.-Japan-Korea trilateral. Um, so all these measures uh, are intended to uh, help strengthen and, and defend um, the U.S. and its allies from an attack. But this is where you run into a type of security dilemma, where those steps are meant to increase the security of the U.S., South Korea, and its you know, allies like Japan. Uh, it actually pushes the adversary to also respond or to take steps. And then you lead into this type of art, you know, spiraling arms, uh, arms race. And that's what we're seeing in the region. We're seeing a militarization of, of Northeast Asia and perhaps even the Indo-Pacific. But we have to find an off-ramp. Uh, and that's something that the U.S. and South Korea haven't been able to do yet, in big part because, again, the North Koreans just don't seem interested uh, in negotiating. So I think what has to happen is you know, we have to work, we meaning the U.S., South Korea, has to work on some type, type of engagement uh, strategy with, uh, with North Korea. And this is where you know, there's always been discussion about trying to rope in the Chinese, whether they could be constructive or not. Um, some are arguing because of the Russian-North Korea ties, that's not something that China is so happy about, that maybe the Chinese may be more constructive because they will also see the region becoming more uh, destabilized. Um, that might be one approach, maybe trying to get the Chinese to um, talk to the North Koreans. Uh, or you know, what some are suggesting is in the elections, if, if President Trump, if, there's a, you know, if this is a Trump 2.0, you know, would he be... Uh, willing to take a different tactic and for the time being accept North Korea as a nuclear state and would that break by in return get some sort of freeze or guarantee that they won't uh, pursue further um, you know nuclear fissile material would that be uh, another tech to help di dial down tension so basically focusing on a risk reduction um, um, strategy uh, that would require South Korea to be on board with that. I think that would bring some tensions between the U.S. and, and the Yoon Sung-yeol um, government. But, you know, these are all just ideas in terms of how to draw North Korea as a shell to uh, engage uh, with the, uh, either with South Korea or with the U.S., but we just haven't found the right formula yeah. yet. Right. And in the meantime, North Korea seems determined to provoke and raise tensions this year. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. We've been speaking to Dr. Andrew Ya from the Brookings Institution. Thank you once again for your time today. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index fell 10.26 points or 0.4% on Monday, to close the day at 2,567.82. The tech-heavy Kosdaq rose, however, gaining 1.01 points, or 0.11%, to close at 879.34. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 0.61 against the US dollar, closing the day at 1,316 won. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr.
We continue on now to Korea Trending, our daily segments where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online today. And for that, we have with us in the studio contributor Diane Yu. Diane, hello. It's great to see you. Hello, j a n g o Okay, so what stories do you have for us today? Recently in Korea, there's one particular job sector that's aging super fast, the prosecution. According to the Ministry of Justice on Sunday, the number of high prosecutors with about 20 years of experience accounted for 38.2% of, of all prosecutors, the highest ever as of the end of last year. This is a sharp increase of 11.1 percentage points compared to the figure in 2014, 10 years ago. However, the number of rank-and-file prosecutors responsible for investigative work has decreased. Right, so basically the number of younger generations working as prosecutors at the forefront of investigative cases has decreased. Mm -hmm. And that means... more workload for junior prosecutors, right? Right. Many of them are complaining about the increased workload. As a result of a reduction in the number of rank-and-file prosecutors with less than 10 years of experience, there is a rise in caseloads per prosecutor, leading to a recurring cycle of delays in case processing due to the overwhelming workload. The current number of cases per prosecutor is 1,064, which is 2.4 times higher than Japan and 4.5 times higher than the average of European countries. Okay, so why is this happening? This is surprising considering that becoming a prosecutor is still a highly sought after and regarded profession in society. So why is the prosecution job field aging with uh, no influx of the younger generation? It's due to the increase in the number of prosecutors continuing to work until they reach retirement age. This is different from the past practice where many prosecutors retired whenever there were personnel appointments and reshuffles. Mm. Conversely, the number of newly appointed prosecutors has dropped significantly, decreasing by less than half in 10 years. On top of this unfortunate reality, the number of younger prosecutors with less than 10 years of experience leaving the workforce has been on the rise due to high workload and low salaries. According to the Ministry of Justice, those younger generations handing in their letters of resignation account for about 30% of all retirees. Wow. So in the past, even if there was a high workload, the long-term career prospects and the Mm. status of being a prosecutor will likely have helped people stay. But the younger generation are perhaps saying that it's not worth it now. Mm. It'll be very interesting to see what impact this has on the prosecution and the nation's uh, justice system in the long term. Right. An issue that is brewing, it seems. Mm. Okay, let's move on to our second story. What do you have for us? Korean-American actor Steven Yeun has made history at the 2024 Golden Globe Awards held in L.A. on Sunday afternoon local time. The 40-year-old became the first Asian actor to win Best Performance by a Male Actor in a Limited Series, Anthology Series, or a Motion Picture Made for Television at the 81st Annual Awards Show. The talented actor secured the accolade for his role in the Netflix road rage drama Beef. Yes, what a triumph for Yan. He mm. was up against some fierce Hollywood A-list competition as well, right? Yes, he beat five other strong competitors, including John Hamm for Fargo, Matt Bomber for Fellow Travelers, and Woody Harrelson for White House Palmers. So after getting the award, Yan said that he's just so thankful and added that he is just the recipient of a long line of compassionate love, protection, and goodwill. He also jokingly likened his story to the plot of the Zizi film 
Frozen. It was a wonderful night for the drama Beef in general, as it won the Best Television Limited Series, Anthology Series, or Motion Picture Made for Television Award. Also, Ellie Wong, who starred alongside Yun, also made history as the first Asian woman to win a Golden Globe for the first, uh, Best Actress in the same category as Yun. Yes, so really great night for the show. Mm. And it was also created, of course, by a Korean-American writer and director, Lee Sung-jin. So congratulations to him as well. The show garnered a lot of love worldwide soon after its release last year, right? Uh, it did. Beef ranked in the top 10 most watched shows on the streaming platform for five consecutive weeks when it was released in April last year. Uh, thanks to its popularity, the drama also has 13 nominations in 11 categories at this year's Emmy Awards. Steven Yeun is nominated for Best Actor in a Limited Series, and with this Golden Globe win, his his chances of winning an Emmy Award next week have increased. Yes, we'll see if the awards continue to roll. Mm. Let's uh, move on to our final story. What else do you have for us today? We have entered an era where high-quality photos and videos can be taken anytime, anywhere, by anyone. With that, we hear about people illegally taking photos and uh, videos of others in all sorts of places. And that is exactly what happened at one of the performances of a play called Wife, which stars K-pop group Girls' Generation's Choi Soo-young. It was belatedly revealed that a male audience member had taken pictures of the singer-turned-actress during a scene where she changes clothes on stage. Well, that actually sounds potentially quite disturbing mm. as well. How did this person's actions come to light? A review was posted online for an audience member who saw the performance. They said that they felt uncomfortable due to the man taking pictures with of Che with a camera. The writer then raised the issue of negligent management of the venue, saying that as soon as the man started taking photographs, other people followed suit, even though it was clearly not the time to take pictures without anyone trying to stop them. In addition to this online post, several other reviews continued that they had experienced similar inconveniences during the performance. Well, it's definitely not following theatre etiquette. Mm. Has the production company of Wife come out and made a statement regarding this incident? The production company said on Sunday that they had no idea that the illegal filming happened as the person was sitting in a blind spot. It also announced plans to hire more staff for surveillance and increase the number of notices in foreign languages to prevent reoccurrence. Well, it's good that they are taking the claims seriously. Mm. Isn't photography and video recording strictly prohibited during performances, especially due to copyright and publicity rights? You're correct. According to the Copyright Act, the act of distributing secret cam videos of performances of plays, musical or concerts constitutes copyright infringement and is subject to criminal punishment. Such offense may result in imprisonment of up to five years or a fine of up to 50 million won, which is about 38,000 US dollars. It can lead to reduced attendance or admission revenue and hindrance in producers' creative motivation, raising the possibility that it might cause extensive damage to the entire performance ecosystem. Right, but this sounds perhaps less about copyright infringement, but more about sexual objectification and non-consensual photography mm. in a place that's meant to be a safe artistic space. Right. It's a disappointing to hear, but hopefully with better policing by the staff, it can be addressed. Mm. OK, that's where we'll wrap it up for today's Career Trending. Thank you for those stories and we'll see you next time. See you next time.
Next up, it's Monday Sports Roundup, our weekly roundup of the latest sporting results and headlines from Korea. And joining us on the line for that, it is the one and only Yu Ji Ho, sports reporter for the Yanap News Agency, with the latest updates. Jiu, hello, it's great to talk to you again. Yeah, it's great to be here. Happy New Year to you. Yes, it is in fact the first roundup of the year, so Happy New Year to you as well, Ji Ho. And 2024 is. Kicking off with a bit of a bang as well. There are going to be quite a few international sports events this year, but the first one is just starting later this week. It is the AFC Asian Cup in Qatar, and expectations are high. That's because the Korean team has set their sights on the title itself. Korea's first game will be on January 15th, but they played their final tune-up match against Iraq on Saturday and prevailed 1-0 in Abu Dhabi. So, Jiho, let's recap that match first. Sure. Well, it was 1-0 victory for Korea. Uh, midfielder Lee Jae-sung scoring late in the first half for the narrow win as Korea extended, extended their winning streak to six matches. So 20 goals, none conceded during the six-match winning streak. And all the big boys were held out of the starting lineup. Uh, Son Heung-min, Hwang Hee-chan, Lee Gang-in, Kim Min-jae, and Cho Gyu-sung were all brought in off the bench to begin the second half. And, you know, they had some promising moments right away, but did not end up scoring in the second half. And perhaps with the benefit of VAR, uh, Korea maybe could have had a couple of calls go their way. Uh, for, for instance, Cho Gyu-sung had a shot going off the arm of a defender, uh, did, did not get called. Uh, Sony getting tripped up by the goalkeeper Jalal Hassan in the box on a, on a breakaway opportunity. Uh, you know, he wasn't caught for the foul either. So, uh, but uh, at the same time, um, you know, I think Korea could have been a little bit more clinical around the, around the goal. Now, toward the end of the match, uh, Lee Gang-in was tossed for picking up his second yellow card after some getting into a little bit of a shopping match with uh, one of the Iraqi players. Uh, I think it was a lesson learned for Lee Gang-in who, you know, he's too important for his team to get kind of dragged into that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, he has to keep his composure and not really get goaded into a, into a situation like that. And, of course, it was a physical match, um, especially in the second half. There was a bit of, I guess, uh, uh, swing and elbow on Lee Gang-in's part before the ball was called dead. And then they kind of got into a shopping match a little bit. And both ended up getting a yellow. And, of course, it was second for Lee Gang-in, so mm-hmm. he got tossed. But... Uh, yeah, again, he's too important for this team to lose his call and cost himself and the team right. a, a valuable spot in the lineup. I mean, I guess it was good to see him fired up, but this was just sure. friendly. And emotions yeah, are going to get even higher during the competition. So, as mm-hmm. you said, it's important for him to keep that in check, especially as he is such an important player for Korea, as you mentioned. So it was a nervy 1-0 win in the end. It can be hard to make too much of a... Uh, too much out of a match where Korea's best players only played the second half. But still, mm-hmm. what do you think we can take away from this? I think the one thing we noticed is that this team does rely so heavily on those top dogs. Uh, again, like a win is a win, right? It's always nice to get into a tournament with a win. Uh, but I think, I think it would have been nice to see some of the reserves maybe contribute a little more on the offensive end. Uh, you know, look, Sonny, Cho Gyu-sung, Lee Gang-in, they didn't score in the second half. But we all know they're capable of scoring goals, uh, especially when the tournament comes. Uh, but uh, look, if not going to what if any one of those guys gets injured, uh, you don't, you don't. I don't know if uh, Jurgen Klinsmann has really a viable option to replace them in the lineup. Mm. Now it's a luxury to have those guys 
not only in the lineup, but also peaking at the same time, pretty much. Like, Son is having a great year. Uh, Hwang Yi-chan already has a career-high 10 goals. Uh, Lee Gang-in just scored in the, the French Super Cup before joining the national team. And what have you, Kim Min-jae has been Kim Min-jae. He's a great defender. But, you know, if those guys go down, again, knock on wood, um, you know, who's going to be able to step up to fill the void in a short tournament like this? Um, so uh, I think we only found out about Korea's really heavy reliance on those top guys. Mm. Uh, but and it would be nice to get some contribution from secondary sources, uh, especially because you're going to play a lot of matches in a short t- short span. Uh, you know, some guys might get banged up. They're, the opponents are going to come out, play some physical football. So, you know, some injuries can happen and usually do happen during the tournament. So I think it's really important for the backup guys to really step up their games. Right. Squad depth is a concern. The team has been criticised for lacking a plan B before as well. Mm-hmm. But when the A team is so strong, it can be hard for the reserves to match up. In any case, the competition officially begins this Friday and Korea's first game against Bahrain is next Monday evening, Korea time. So we'll have another final preview of that game and Korea's prospects in this competition in our next roundup next Monday. OK, carrying on now, let's turn to the Domestic Men's Volleyball League and Hyundai Capital Skywalkers because they've won five matches in a row now. That's after making a coaching change and they've jumped from sixth to fourth in the standings. So it's quite a remarkable turnaround. Jiho, what's the latest on their surge? Yeah, so it has been remarkable indeed. Hyundai Capital defeating Samsung Fire Bluefangs 3-1 to on Sunday for their fifth consecutive victory. They've got uh, they've improved to nine and thirteen for thirty one points. They're one point ahead of uh, OK Financial Group for fourth place. So they they've gone from kind of being outside the picture of the playoffs to really having a strong possibility of getting into the postseason uh, in the V League. So the top three teams in the regular season make the postseason in the Korean V League. But if the gap between number three and number four seeds is three points or fewer. Those two teams will play in one-and-done kind of a play-in match. So currently, Hyundai Capital, they're uh, seven points back of Korean Air for third place with 14 matches remaining. And Korean Air has been struggling struggling a little bit of late. So um, it's pretty entirely possible that Hyundai Capital could force that play-in match and finish within three points of whoever finished in third place. Or they could even finish in third place themselves. And they actually play each other on Friday. So it's, things are getting a little interesting in the middle of the standings. Now, Hyundai Capital, uh, they lost the first five matches of this season, coming off a runaround finish last, last year. So they fired coach Choi Tae-yong, who would have been in the charge since, uh, you know, back in 2015. Uh, so that, that happened on December 21st. And five matches since, under interim head coach Jin Sung-gi, uh, they've won five in a row. Uh, they've only dropped two sets during the streak. So, uh, I mean, talking about riding the ship, uh, they're, they're really going at it. Uh, looks like they are, they're going to threaten to make the playoffs. Right. I guess we'll see over the next couple of weeks if this is just the new head coach bounce or whether he really has turned, turned them into playoff contenders. It'll definitely be exciting to see for volleyball fans here. And finally, the new PGA Tour season started in Hawaii on Thursday and Korean golfer Im Sung-jae finished tied for fifth. But on the way, he set a tour record for the most birdies in a 72-hole tournament in the final round on Sunday. So, Gio, tell us more about this remarkable accomplishment. Sure. Well, Im Sung-jae is a birdie machine. He made 34 birdies over the four days of uh, the century, uh, the tournament out in Hawaii, the season opening event for the 2024 season. 
Uh, he made 11 birdies in the final round to finish at 63. He had one bogey in this round. So nine birdies in the first round, eight in the second, six in the third, and 11 in the final round. Uh, you know, wasn't good enough to win. Uh, he finished the 25 under par, four back of the champion Chris Kirk. Uh, but he now has the record for most birdies in a 72-hole event by two. The previous record, 32 birdies, had been done three times, most recently by John Ram at the Century, the same tournament, last year. Uh, Im has always done well at this tournament, played on the uh, plantation course in Kapalua. This is his third top ten in four, four appearances on this course. And he said before the tournament that this course was, was there for the taking as long as the wind didn't blow so hard. Uh, so third round of even par 73 kind of took him out of contention. Uh, he'd been tied for second after two rounds, but uh, six birdies in the third round were negated by four bogeys and one double bogey. So he kind of fell off the uh, contention a little bit, but battled back with 11 birdies in the final round. And you know what? He was not even the top Korean player at the end. Uh, Am Byung-hoon was the... Uh, Top Korean player among the four in the field was one shot better than Im Jong-jae in Seoul the fourth. Kim Ji-woo tying for 25th and Tom Kim tying for 45th. Wow, so an encouraging start to the golf season for the Korean men. Uh, we certainly hope to hear more of their exploits in 2024. But for today, that's all for our roundup. Ji-ho, thank you for those updates. Have a great week and we'll talk to you again next time. Okay, too. Thanks for having me. This is violinist Itiyun, concertmaster at Staatskapelle Berlin. You are listening to Korea 24. We've come to our closing segment now, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald. And for that, we have joining us in the studio our staff editor, Richard Larkin, who's been Looking through those papers for us. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Good to see you too. Okay. So what's the first article that you have for us today? So over the past year or two, there have been several cases where important cultural heritages have been damaged uh, due to issues like flooding during monsoon season or more recently, vandalism. Mm. I'm sure our listeners remember the Gyeongbuk Palace graffiti incidents last month. Yes. Well, according to the Cultural Heritage Administration on Monday, the Korean government will begin using technologies to protect these important landmarks. Uh, that's what Choi Siung's article in the culture section of the Korea Herald is about. So was this a decision then made in the aftermath of the Gyeongbuk Palace graffiti incidents? It actually wasn't. So this has been in the works for around a year. Flooding and fires due to hot temperatures uh, are looking to become more common as a result of climate change. So it makes sense that this plan has been implemented. Mm. Let me briefly explain what will be installed at sites to protect them. First, special structures will be used to stop fires or floods from reaching these sites. Then technologies using radiation analysis will be used to identify the best preservation methods. And finally, the article mentions that a centre dedicated to implementing these high-end technologies will be created. Yes, it was devastating, some of the damage that the floods last summer yes. did to a lot of these important sites around the country. Mm. Uh, especially there was this one pavilion at a fortress in Gongju that really uh, went viral. The whole pavilion right. was pretty much 
uh, underwater apart from the roof and it was rather heartbreaking to see. So while these installations then will help stop fire damage or water damage, I'm guessing the hope is then that it'll also prevent vandalism in the future because this is something that we've become concerned about lately as well. Yeah, that is also something the government has taken into consideration because trying to clean graffiti off important buildings is a very difficult task. Mm. Gyeongbuk Palace, for example, the cleaning is still not complete nearly a month later and it takes a, a large group of people to work on removing the graffiti and a lot of money. Apparently it costs at least 20 million won uh, on restoration, which is about 15,000 US dollars. Okay, let's move on to our second story. What do you have for us? Well, I have some bad news for our listeners who use Seoul's subway system. Ehirim's article in the national section of the Korea Times explains that the Seoul Metropolitan Government plans to raise the subway fare sometime this year by 151, so that's 11 cents. Yes, so Seoul Metro has been seeing financial difficulties, Mm. has been well documented, but still, this would be the second increase in just a year. Right, yeah, last October, the subway fare saw a 151 increase. Back then, the city actually planned to increase the fare by 301, but it was changed to 151 to alleviate the burden on people. Uh, so we don't know when the hike will happen, this current one, uh, this upcoming one, because the Seoul Metro has uh, to negotiate and discuss the decision with other operators. But the article mentions that there are speculations that the change could come in July. Okay, so why July? Does the writer give any explanation? That's because uh, that is when Seoul's unlimited transit card will be officially implemented. We talked about the card on the show before, but for our listeners who may not know, this card will cost 62,000 won a month or 65,000 won if you include the public bike sharing service Tarangi. So between uh, 47 and 49 dollars and you get unlimited uh, rides for that month. Uh, Many speculate that the fare hike and the card's official implementation will come at the same time. Right, so while people uh, who use the subway often were happy that there was this unlimited card coming, Mm. at the same time, we could be seeing a general fare hike as well. So with one hand, he gave in one hand, I (laughs) guess they take away, I guess. But uh, yes, that is something to watch out for later this year. Okay, that's where we're going to wrap it up for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. That's where we wrap up our show for today. Thank you for staying with us. Do join us again tomorrow for more news, views and reviews from Korea. Till then, we hope all the listeners have a wonderful day. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye.